0: Sahana Vavatu, Sahana Bhunaktu, Sahaviryankara Vaha Vahai, Tejasvina Vati Tamastu, Mavit Visha
1: Hi, Tom. I was listening to your podcast over the weekend, the one dealing with drugs and spirit medicine, in which you talk about the receptors in the body and the effect of overstimulation of these receptors using external drugs that the body can actually manufacture itself. Alcohol is a drug that is so prevalent in society today. I was wondering, given its effect on the body, it is presumably replicating the effect of a chemical that the body itself can also generate. If so, some of these effects can be positive. For example, the removal of some inhibitions. How can you replicate this naturally without the harmful effects of taking alcohol? And is my understanding of this chemical process correct?
0: Well, thank you for asking the last question in your commentary. First of all, it's very important to understand the pathway of alcohol and the effect that it has on the physiology is utterly different to the pathway taken by drugs, whether we call them spirit medicine or we call them plant medicine, or we call them drugs, which is what they are, that are brought exogenous, psychoactive drugs and molecules that are brought into the physiology, either by mouth or by a smoke or via injection through whatever means they enter the body, They're exogenous meaning from outside the body, their effect as you accurately heard stated and restated from my podcast is that they molecularly mimic the shape of molecular groups, which our own brain and body know how to produce and for which we have receptors. And then those psychoactive exogenous molecules find their way into receptors that were not designed for receiving the exogenous, but were designed for receiving the endogenous. And then, To further this part of the conversation, the endogenous chemistry becomes sublimated. That is to say, the body figures that you already have plenty of it because the receptors are filled with the inferior exogenous product. And so the endogenous product and its production in the body's secretion sites is toned way down or even eliminated. And this makes us dependent for those heightened consciousness experiences makes us dependent upon the exogenous substance and this sublimation is the first step in the direction of addiction now alcohol works completely differently it works by destroying brain function in certain parts of the brain alcohol is toxic to the human body it's not a product our body can produce nothing like it when you introduce the toxin into the body one of the first and most direct effect it has both on the central nervous system and on the brain is to destroy the repertoire of functions of certain parts of the brain that provide us with discriminating thinking by discriminating, I mean, differentiating thinking that provide us with the capacity for clarity of thought for short-term memory, some long-term memory and so on. And with regular application, the brain cells, not only are suppressed, And those parts of the brain that provide us with that critical thinking, but actually are destroyed. And the brain cells themselves are killed off or die. And that material in the brain is necrotized. It turns into dead mass. And so it's no longer available for producing any kind of consciousness experience. And then regular use of alcohol simply increases the speed with which we approach brain death. And so we have miniature amounts of brain death in moderate alcohol use and as we increase our alcohol use entire portions of the brain die off and become unavailable for generating consciousness experiences so this is the effect that alcohol has it does not act like psychoactive exogenous substances that are attracted to which reside in the receptors that are designed for endogenous chemistry alcohol works purely on the basis of toxicity and we're sort of having a very selective poisoning of the brain and the central nervous system. This is how it impacts us. So then the loss of inhibitions is a loss that is non-selective. It's very important for us to realize that although we have told ourselves, particularly since the 1960s, that inhibitions are a bad thing, But in fact, inhibitions save us from behaving in ways that are completely counterproductive socially. Some of our inhibitions may be overdone and cause us to have behaviors that are a little bit wound up and uptight, but other inhibitions, for example, and I'll just use an example, if you have a very angry thought and you feel like you want to kill somebody, it is good that you're inhibited from acting out on that thought by the ability to discriminate what the cascade of effects will be if you carry out the impulsive action. That's an inhibition. You're inhibited from acting out on impulsive thinking. And so the in this sense, inhibitions are good. What happens when we remove inhibitions using alcohol is that certain inhibitions we might've had, for example, I may have been inhibited about speaking at all socially or speaking my mind. Okay. Well, we agree that it's good to lose that inhibition, but at the same time, under the influence of alcohol, we lose all other inhibitions too. Some of which may have indeed protected us from grossly irrelevant or destructive social behavior. And so it's a non-selective removal of all inhibitions. Let's contrast that with what meditation does for us. When we practice meditation regularly, we are Awakening inside the stable and balanced production of a cocktail, and I'm using that word temptingly for all of those of you who enjoy drink, a cocktail of bliss chemicals, which is sustainably produced, able to be reproduced again and again, that's good for our health, good for our heart, good for our brain, good for our longevity, good for our look, cosmetically improves our look. enhances the way in which we age gracefully. This cocktail of bliss chemicals is produced by meditation also removes the stresses that stop us from behaving naturally in situations where we could be behaving naturally. And this is the selective, if you like, removal of inhibiting behavior where certain kinds of inhibitions we have that are caused by stress are removed because the stress that causes those useless inhibitions is removed. But those inhibitions that we have that are helpful to us, like not acting on an impulsive thought, an angry thought, a frightened thought, a sad thought, these kinds of inhibitions against negative behaviors are strengthened by our practice of Vedic meditation. And those kinds of inhibitions that are caused simply by overaccumulation of stress stress increases fear, stress increases sadness, stress increases anger. So eliminating those stresses is going to give us a balanced approach to being uninhibited in areas where inhibitions are counterproductive and continuing to be inhibited against negative and irrelevant or aggressive or destructive behaviors. So this is the effect of Vedic meditation when contrasted with the effect on our physiology of alcohol.
1: Can you discuss the mention of alcohol and wine in some of the ancient Vedic texts, such as the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, and the role that it plays both during those times as well as in modern culture today?
0: We have to look at the original Sanskrit. We have to look at the individual context and episodes and the original Sanskrit writing of these texts to see if indeed the substance that's being referred to is wine or alcohol, or simply being translated as such could be the imbibing of consciousness in its fluid form, which is known as soma. Soma, S-O-M-A is a word that made its way by the Greek into English language. Somatic means body to do with the body. Soma comes from the Greek for body, but Soma in fact was brought into the Greek language by Alexander came from the ancient Sanskrit, not for body, but for a celestial biochemical that is considered to be the combination of the cocktail of all the bliss chemicals that get created when we transcend, when we experience the bliss state at the source of thought, baseline consciousness, is a state of bliss and it's productive of bliss consciousness and bliss physiology, all of which are mediated by certain neurotransmitters. These are protein-like substances and peptides, neuropeptides, neurotransmitters that instruct the body to go into a bliss mode. And this is very often thought of as and mythologized as a chemical soma, which is imbibed by the deities in the mythos of ancient India and can also be imbibed by humans, Soma. So the product of drinking Soma quotes is sometimes mistranslated as someone having drunk some wine. So the wine in this case is not the wine of the grape. It is the product of certain secretion sites in our brain that allow us to go into highly creative states so when we read these episodes if what we're reading is that people's performance and function becomes higher they become higher functioning they become more creative more intelligent more sustainably happy not by becoming indiscriminate not by becoming someone who is like a loose cannon socially rolling around a ship, a loose cannon breaks holes in the ship and sinks it. Like that image of someone who is inebriated, suffering from brain death, graded brain death, which is brought about by alcohol, is going to become more and more indiscriminate and lose the good inhibitions as well as the bad ones and not be in a sustained state. So if we see that kind of reaction in the episodes in which we read about the imbibing of certain fluids then those decoctions, those libations, are referring to alcohol. And if we see, as a result of the so-called drinking, quote some libation or fluid, then this is the legendary retelling of the way that the brain of the subjects in the story is producing soma. And they're having a shared experience of imbibing soma the bliss chemistry that comes for transcendence so we'd have to look episode by episode to see which of these cascades of effects coming from which kind of thing the unsustainable versus the sustainable and this would be explanatory of all these episodic allusions to imbibing of various kinds of libations
1: we have seen in our community that there are many who struggle with alcohol consumption and addiction Take to Vedic meditation in a profound and enthusiastic way. Is there something that this group of meditators have in common that makes them even more likely to get great benefits from this practice or any conclusions that we can draw from it?
0: Unlike many members of society who look upon indiscriminate drug use, whether it's done under the auspices of it being quote unquote sacred. Or it's more unglorified usage, which is just getting high escaping or whatever. One thing that unifies all of these imbibers of substances, whoever they may be, is the search for higher consciousness states. Nobody drinks whiskey because they want to feel bad. They drink it because they want to feel good. Nobody drinks wine because they want to feel bad. They drink it because they wanna feel good. Nobody shoots up some heroin because it gave them a terrible experience. They shoot it up because it gave them euphoria, however temporary, there was euphoria there. No one imbibes THC because THC makes you feel terrible. They imbibe it, if ever they imbibe it a second or third or many times after the first, because after their first, they notice that it made them feel better than they felt before that. What is this? This is all seeking. We're seeking higher consciousness states. These are the people who are willing even to sacrifice their physiology and the longevity of their physiology. If only they can challenge the assumption made by all other people that life is just about suffering. They want a consciousness state in which one can rise above suffering and the result would be hopefully, to find some kind of nectar that can cause us to rise above suffering sustainably. These are all seekers and they're brave people. They're brave people who are willing to take a risk and even at the risk of harming their physiology and their brain, and even at the risk of harming their social relationships, they're seeking a consciousness state higher than what they see and what's taught to them at home and at school. There are only three states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, sleeping. You stay awake all day. If you work hard and you earn money, pay your rent and you are good, pay your taxes and all of that, you get exhausted at the end of the day, you fall asleep. You sleep in the night, you have dreams, you wake the next day and go back to work again and work, 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 consume, consume, consume. And at the end of all of this, you might die but you'll die having felt as though you made an honest contribution to the social structure. And people will look at that sometimes and think there has to be something more than this. There has to be a consciousness state that I can get into that is different to what I see, waking, dreaming, sleeping, awake all day, go to sleep, and then dream a bit and then wake up again, then go to sleep and then dream. If this is all there is, I don't want it. I'm willing to take any risk to experience something other than this. These are seekers, and these seekers will go after almost anything that can give them even temporary relief from the monotony, the constant routine of the three consciousness states. And they're right. There is a consciousness state that lies above and beyond these three. It's called Turiya. Turiya in Sanskrit means the fourth, the fourth consciousness state. That fourth consciousness state is a state of pure transcendence. And on our way to the state of transcendence, if we're fortunate enough to learn Vedic meditation, we know that we can experience abstract consciousness states that are the lead up to that transcendence of the fourth state. We can and we do experience these things regularly in Vedic meditation. But in the absence of Vedic meditation, people are willing to try anything. And all of those anythings taken together make up many unsustainable approaches to having a fourth state of consciousness, at least one new state of consciousness that is not just the regular everyday routine monotonous experience. When these people find that either they're sustaining their use of exogenous substances to give them higher experiences, or they have an unsustainable approach to these exogenous substances and only occasionally getting higher experiences and with diminishing returns and ever dwindling access to some experience they may once have had, that is to say, whether they've taken an approach that is sustainable with regard to exogenous substances or unsustainable, addictive approach, they may be addicted and be able for the short term to sustain it or they may have become addicted and lost their ability to sustain anything. But they have one thing in common. They're people who are very driven seekers. Once they learn Vedic meditation and they discover the sustainable way of experiencing the ultimate. What is the ultimate? That my own inner self, my own inner baseline, my own inner state being is one with the universe my own inner state of being is the infinitely expansive, pure, supreme, contented, blissful state of, there was a use of the word once religiously, the word is Godhead. Godhead means the point at which individuality meets, universality. I can experience my oneness with the universe inside myself and my brain evidently loves it so much that it produces sustainably its own natural chemicals that keep me in this state and keep me going. And it grows and grows in stability day after day after day. So these are the people who finally have found it. They found what it was they were looking for and all of these unsustainable approaches. And this is what unites them. This is what unites all these people. And this is what I have found is that people who formerly may have had some addiction to exogenous substances. At the very least, they were brave enough to step out of line and experiment in order to serve and find that which they were very intently seeking for. And sometimes I've heard people laugh at this suggestion of mine and say, I wasn't seeking anything. I just wanted to get drunk. I don't feel like I was a seeker. I was just trying to get drunk. And my answer is no, that's also being a seeker. You want it to transcend the world of the ever repeating known and get to that experience that was above and beyond that state of the ever repeating known. And so you can trivialize it by saying, I just wanted to get drunk. That's a trivialization of what in fact is a very noble mission. The noble mission being to acquire a heightened state of consciousness and if possible to stabilize it. It's just that the methodology was not sustainable. That's the difference.
1: What's the explanation from the Vedic worldview for the effect many newly sober people experience of feeling worse in the early days of sobriety? In addition to the physical detoxification effect, is there a spiritual explanation for this experience?
0: I've heard that sometimes when people are taking practical steps and proven steps to becoming "Quote sober, that is to say, they are stepping away from exogenous substances that ultimately are addictive and destructive for the physiology. That there seem to be two classes of people, some for whom that systematized program of stepping away from the addictive substance is relatively smooth. Things right away seem to be getting better and better, and for some people, It's almost all encompassing a gloomy experience that they feel a powerful withdrawal from the substance and its effects on them. And I've been asked, what is my view or the Vedic worldview on what the difference is between these kinds of experiences? The degree of dependency is different in different people. When we give ourselves over to the substance that has for us, however unsustainably, produced some kind of heightened consciousness state. We got into a heightened consciousness state, but the price that came with it was very, very high. And we make a decision to step away from it using proven methodologies that involve transcendence. That is to say, going beyond my relationship with the substance and the spirit of that substance and going to the big self and awakening the totality of the laws of nature, how much I had given away is going to make quite a distinct difference in the degree to which I find ease in coming away from the unsustainable habit. So if I had made myself utterly a devotee of the substance, utterly a devotee of the consciousness of that. If we want to think of it in terms of mythos, that being that provided the experience, then I relied utterly on that experience for everything that I am. My definition, the definition of me, what I am, who I am, what kind of a person I am. You can hear people write songs about this, defining themselves as a stoner or defining themselves as a lover of the libation of whiskey or whatever it may be. That they've self-defined utterly and gone into complete orbit around the experience provided by that consciousness impulse that's giving them this higher experience. And there's always a process of diminishing returns. The more you devote, the more you dedicate. If you eschew the needs of family in favor of giving support to that and the mythos terms, the deific quality of that spirit that is providing you with ever-diminishing returns, fewer and fewer experiences of sustained euphoria, asking an ever-greater cost. You give over your life, you give over your identity, you give over your family, you give over your job, then making the withdrawal from that, the degree of devotion that you'd had to it. And now your awareness is shifting elsewhere then no longer are you uh, someone who would simply have the freedom to choose something different but you're in the habit of living inside those constraints uh, perhaps one quick analogy would be helpful when i taught meditation and in incarcerated settings prisons i met all kinds of characters some of whom had been in for 25 years 30 years and the longest case that I came across was 40 years incarcerated before being paroled, before being released. And in one of these cases, the daughter of the former inmate called me. He had learned to meditate inside. I had taught him to meditate. He practiced for about five years. And then his time of parole finally came up and he was being released. His daughter called me from home and asked if I could come around. I was providing an after prison support program for people who'd learned to meditate with me on the inside. And I asked what's the problem And she said, well, you see, when he was inside the prison, every time he would walk up to a door, he had to stop because it was absolutely against the prison rules to reach out and touch any door handle. And so even though he's absolutely free, he's still behaving like he's in the prison when he walks around through the house. He'll stop at a closed door and wait. Somebody else has to come and open the door for him, even though he's absolutely free. So think of that as being something akin to the way that when we've operated under the auspices and we've become utterly devoted to some kind of spirit that has provided us with an experience. And now we're taking systematic steps to come away from that. We still feel a deep habituation to our former devotion and to let go of that and to discover our freedom is a completely new issue. There was a great story that my master Maharishi Mahesh Yogi told about his own master, Gurudev. There was a story about Gurudev having witnessed, and he told this very much to his devotees, the way in which monkeys were caught for becoming slave monkeys or pet monkeys. There was a huge market in the 1920s and thirties in the West and elsewhere for people to have pet monkeys. And they were kind of a popular thing in those decades, those decades of excess, the roaring twenties particularly. And that happened to be the time when my master's master was spending his time in silence in the forest. And he could watch from the edges of the forest as the monkey catchers came and applied their interesting tricks you dig a hole in the ground that's about the size of a monkey's hand and forearm. And you place over that a piece of plywood that has a hole about that same size in it. And then down inside the hole, you place all kinds of sweets and nuts and raisins and things that monkeys like. And then you just walk away. And what happens is the monkeys eventually will come out of the forest and they'll walk up to the little hole in the ground and reach their hand in and grasp the nuts and the candies and the, other things that they see and smell in there and want to bring it out. But because they have their fist full of these goodies, they can't get their fist out of the hole. The hand went in just fine because it didn't have a fist that was clutching all the goodies, but when they try to withdraw their hand, they can't withdraw it because they have all these goodies clutched in their hand. Now, if they were simply to let go of the goodies, their hand would slip out of the hole perfectly easily and they could escape. But since the monkeys were so indoctrinated to get these sweets out, they wouldn't let go of them. And even when the monkey catchers would approach with their burlap bags to capture the monkey and the monkey would be screaming with fear, it still wasn't willing to let go of the sweets. Now, the moral of the story is the monkey is always free, actually, but the monkey doesn't think it's free because it doesn't want to let go of the sweets. So the hanging on to and the holding on to the pleasures that once upon a time came from the processes of addiction to holding on to those qualities that once upon a time were rewarding and the monkey is about to get caught and is probably going to have all the sweets and things taken away from it anyway. And it will have lost all of its freedom. On what basis? It was always free actually. Let go of the sweets and walk away but there's certain monkeys that just can't let go of the (laughs) sweeties. So they end up having to lose their freedom in that way. So we can think of this in terms of the ease with which certain people are able to let go of those experiences that they had during their addictive time. And they perhaps weren't as deeply affected by the pleasures of those experiences as others were, who were very, very deeply affected by the pleasures of the addictions. And the ease with which they can let go and just walk away is not in their favor. And so it takes more work. We have to learn how to let go. And in our analogy, how do we learn to let go? When we practice Vedic meditation, as our mind goes to subtler and subtler states, we begin to find that we can't remember in that deep, deep state. Your mind is in such a state of bliss that you may not be able to remember even in what chair you're sitting for a moment. Or you may, for a few moments, you forget all about everything that's dear to you, including all of your problems that evidently are so dear to you because you think about them 24 hours a day or during every waking moment, but your problems are forgotten. And what's happening is you're diving into that deep unbounded bliss, that pure state of being, you're practicing letting go, but it doesn't require any effort because. The mind happily will move from something that is yielding less pleasure. It will happily move to something that is yielding greater pleasure, the state of the unbounded bliss. So with the practice of Vedic meditation, the art of letting go becomes ingrained in the meditator. You only let go for those 20 minutes, twice a day. You don't let go forever. You come out of meditation and come back into the boundaries and engage in the world responsibly but you've had the reward of that supreme inner contentedness and all of the bliss chemicals that sustain themselves in your body as a result of having the experience of the bliss. And so then for someone who practices Vedic meditation, the ease with which they can walk away from the pleasures of a previous addiction is a much greater ease than the ease that is there in someone whose greatest pleasures of their last, let's say decade, if it happened, the addiction lasted for a decade, that let's say for a decade, the greatest pleasures they ever had were the pleasures of inebriation or intoxication or psychedelic experiences that thrust them into all kinds of universes for which they had no context whatsoever. The greatest pleasures they had were those temporary experiences. Now they have to walk away from and move away from that they're like the monkey who's holding on to the sweets not so willing to unclench the fist and walk into their freedom it takes practice so vedic meditation provides us with the answer provides us with the greater pleasure that is a pleasure that's greater than anything that could have been had by those addictive phenomena